G'day, 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 and welcome everyone. That's our resident scaredy cat, Kate. And that's the horror junkie, Dominic. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about some scary stuff. The sort of fear your asshole knows about. As always, subscribe, rate, and review us. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Shit and Bricks Podcast. All right, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it. <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> I love how excited you get. <laughs> Because I just love this so much. It's my favourite thing. (laughs) Hi, Kate. Hi, Dominic. How are you? I'm fabulous. And cheers to you having your glass of red wine. My giant glass of red. Oh, Actually, it is starting to get into red wine weather here in Melbourne. It is. So I'm looking forward to picking up that bad habit again. I was just admiring, not admiring actually, I was just observing my hair. I just got it cut recently and I can... Do a real sort of like 90s film star like boy if I part it in the middle, you know what I mean? Like got a bit of a... Nick Carter? Nick Carter, Lord Farquaad, whatever. (laughs) It's just the same sort of vibe. (laughs) Sorry, I got distracted. Yeah, that's okay. So I hear you had an exciting day today. Please tell our listeners. Oh my goodness me. So I went to the Melbourne Zoo today on an excursion. (laughs) So I organized the excursion and it's for my performing arts uh, academy class, which is amazing. They are just the most beautiful, beautiful students. And um, so many people are like, why is a performing arts academy going to the zoo? Mm. Uh, and I said, well, I mean, obviously they're doing a monologue about an animal, like they're <laughs> like a derfred, like what, what do you mean? The c- concept is really challenging for people that aren't necessarily creative or dramatic or for them to wrap their heads around. They thought you've just planned a trip to the zoo for no reason. Like you're just absolutely, this is shits and giggles. And I said, yes, but it is also <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> And trying to explain how students need to identify and apply the characteristics of an animal without being that animal, like as in they're going to be a human version of that animal. Mm. It's the blank stares that I've received this week. My God, they just would fill a void. That was amazing. So I went to the zoo and it was my most favorite day and I loved it. (laughs) I highly recommend go to the Melbourne Zoo, everyone. Go to your local zoo. What a time. Congratulations. You should be so proud of yourself educating (laughs) the kiddies. (laughs) And by educate, you mean just like, okay, guys, I'll see you back at the cafe in an hour. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) My mind immediately went to, I would be a giraffe, I reckon, if I... Do you know, it's really interesting you say that because I did this same, uh, this exact same unit of work at university in my first year of my drama degree. And uh, I chose a giraffe. That was my animal. And my scene was about this giraffe walking into a retail store. And the catchphrase was, just looking, just looking. Because yeah. they would, you know, they're a giraffe. They look. I love it. All it all works. <laughs> um, how are you going? What's news? Tell me about you. I have nothing new to report. No broken oh, limbs. No. Good. No, no, nothing. I'm actually pretty boring at the moment. It's pretty quiet <laughs> time okay. in my life, which I'm quite happy about. Which exactly. has given me an opportunity to write what I think, like always, every week, the best story I have ever written. <laughs> Woo! 
I love that so much. But you know what though? We just if we just continue to improve and improve and improve, which I think we do. Don't at me. But I think it's it's happening. You know, we're just going to get a good episode every time. I love it. Yeah, this one has been cooking and simmering for a while, and uh, I think I'm ready. It was probably not my original story. But I looked at it, it was staring at me. It was like, Dom, come on. I know you want to do me. Talk about me. Do me. Let's go. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to just jump straight in because it is a long one. Mm -hmm. But a bit of a topic. What's the topic for this week? So we all know the first ever episode that we did was uh, on Cannibal Island. Correct. And I did promise that one day I was going to revisit the topic of cannibalism. I love it. But this is from a whole different lens. And this isn't actually what the whole story is really, really about, but it's part of it. That's what the link is to the fear. But I would classify this story as probably the ultimate, like the actual ultimate survival story ever in human history. And I'm happy to be argued Uh, If you've got a better one, please find it and please share it because survival stories, I think, are just amazing uh, as a concept because they get us as close as possible to living those fears and then you get to hear it from the survivor on what it was like and and all that jazz. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited because I do remember you telling me about this earlier on, like, yeah, right back when we did our first episode, which was... Well, this is episode 21. Mm. So, you know, we've we've got a few episodes under our belt now, which is exciting. And I remember you telling me about this and I was intrigued when you initially told me about it. Again, so that I could be surprised, I haven't looked into it very much. So I'm really excited that you are doing this episode today, Dom, and I cannot wait. Oh, excuse me. I almost burped. Oh, you Clearly. almost did or you did? No, I did that, you know, gurgle oh. in the throat and then you yeah. didn't quite burp. So sure. that'll yeah. pop out later. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Extra little nugget for our listeners. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's treat. get into it. You keep yes. drinking and I'm going to keep talking, okay? You got it. Don't have to tell me twice. Oh, and it's going to be a minefield of pronunciation in this. So buckle yes. up for some Bring laugh. it on. All right. All right. Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, also known as Miracle Flight 571, was a chartered flight originating in Montevideo, Uruguay, bound for Santiago, Chile, that crashed high in the Andes Mountains on the 13th of October 1972. So 50th anniversary almost by a few months. But Mm, Nice one. The accident became known as the Andes Flight Disaster or Tragedia de los Andes and the Miracle of the Andes or Milagro de los Andes. Hot. All right. <laughs> well, cold, actually. It's the Andes. <laughs> oh, I met you. I'm definitely a pronunciation. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. Okay, so... Let's start at the very beginning. That seems the most logical place. A very good place to start. Mm -hmm. Now, members of the amateur Old Christians Club rugby union team from Montevideo, Uruguay, were scheduled to play a match against the Old Boys Club, an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile. Now, club president Daniel Wan chartered a Uruguayan Air Force twin turboprop Fairchild plane to fly the team yeah you know that one the Fairchild of course (laughs) to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago 
Now, as always, if you are not good at geography, pull up a map while you're listening to this. Jump on your googly maps and have a little looky-loo because you can follow us along throughout the story. Oh my god, that's cool. It's like a show and tell. Like mm-hmm. just yeah, it's choose your own adventure but don't follow our adventure instead. <laughs> Unless you want to do what they did, which you don't. Oh, no, don't do that. I don't even know the story yet, but don't do that. Now, the aircraft carried 40 passengers and five crew members. Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. So he knew his way around. Yeah, he knows what he was doing. A plane. And he was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Luguara. Oh, nice. There were 10 extra seats and the team members invited a few friends and family members to accompany them. When someone cancelled at the last minute, Grazila Mariana bought the seat so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. Okay. Now, if you're afraid of flying, you're going to hate this story. If you're afraid of... (laughs) Afraid of cannibalism. You're going to hate this story. If you're afraid of shit's going to happen, there's plenty of things to be afraid of, okay? Excellent. I think just stay here, though. Just stick with us. Mm-hmm. You know the, you know the guy. You know the story. You wouldn't be listening to shit and bricks unless that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, so buckle up. And please, your exits are here. Here. <laughs> now, the aircraft departed Carrasco International Airport on the 12th of October, 1972, but a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina. Although there is a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago, 200 kilometers to the west, the high mountains require an altitude of 25,000 to 26,000 feet, which is about 7.6 thousand to 7.9 thousand meters. It's it's high. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do I need to do one of my scale pictures? How many how many V Commodores <laughs> is that stacked on top of each other? <laughs> Just take our word for it. It's a fucked up. It's heaps. Okay. <laughs> now, this is very close to the plane's maximum operational ceiling of 28,000 feet. Um, So given that the aircraft was fully loaded, this route would have required the pilot to very carefully calculate fuel consumption and to avoid the mountains. So instead, it was customary for this type of aircraft to fly a longer 600-kilometer, 90-minute U-shaped route from Mendoza south to Malagui using the A7 airway. Now from there, the aircraft flew west Via the G-17 airway, crossing Planchon to Curico, Curucho, uh, Radio Beacon in Chile, and from there north to Santiago. So, okay. think of a U. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Go, go round the mountains. Go round the mountains, not through the mountains. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, the weather on the 13th of October, the day after, also affected the flight. On that morning, conditions over the Andes had not improved, but changes were expected by the early afternoon. The pilot waited and took off at 2.18pm on Friday the 13th of October from Mendoza. He flew south towards Malagui radio beacon at flight level 180, which is about 18,000 feet, and Luguara radioed the Malagui airport with their position and told them they, were, they would reach 2,500 metres high on the Planchon Pass at around 3.21 p.m., so just over an hour after they departed. Mm -hmm. 
The Planchon Pass is the air traffic control handoff point from one side of the Andes to the other. So we're crossing borders here, right? Great. From country to country. So they normally need to hand over from radio tower to radio tower. With controllers in Mendoza transferring flight tracking duties over to Pudual Air Traffic Control in Santiago, Chile. Now, once across the mountains in Chile, south of Carucho, the aircraft was supposed to turn north and initiate a descent into the Puruaro Airport in Santiago. So as it's coming up at the top of the U, it sort of veers off a little bit and it can start descending into Santiago. Pretty straightforward. It's the same sort of route that's been done many times before. Yeah, especially with a pilot who's got thousands of hours of experience. Yeah, okay, got you. Absolutely. Now, the crash. Whoops. Spoiler, the plane does crash. (laughs) Whoops. Hashtag spoiler (laughs) Oh, no. This is like the Titanic all over again. Yep. Okay. Now, pilot Ferradas had flown across the Andes 29 times previously. On this flight, he was training co-pilot Lagrara, who was the pilot flying. So it was the younger lieutenant colonel who was flying at this time. But he was right. still, you know, he had his, his buddy next to him. So yeah. totally he could have normal. taken over. Yeah, yeah, taken over if there was any trouble or anything like that. Gotcha. Okay. Holy shit, Kate. I don't think I've pressed recording. Yes, I have. So it's fine. <gasps> okay, easy. We can just cut that out in post. <laughs> Simples. Love it. Fortunately, you check that at 13 minutes rather than at 53 minutes. <laughs> oh, how spooky. 13 minutes on the Ooh. 13th of October. <gasps> okay. And what's the date today? The 22nd of March. <gasps> <gasps> There's so many numbers. Now, let's get over there. As they flew through the Andes, clouds obscured the mountains, which is pretty standard. They are very, very high. It can get very cloudy. Yeah. Now, the aircraft was four years old and had had about 792 airframe hours. That means it's been up in high-pressure area flying for 792 hours. So that frame of the airplane has been under stress for that many hours consistently. They measure and track all this stuff with planes, and that's not unusual. The aircraft was regarded by some pilots as underpowered and had been nicknamed by them as the lead sled. Oh. So she hasn't got a powerful, you know, engines, but right. still yeah. perfectly acceptable and normal for it to be doing this flight. The only thing about a sled, though, like I envisage that like going down the snow. And if I'm in a plane, I'm not really wanting that. But mm. I feel as though I feel in my waters that that might come back to be an element of the story. <laughs> Who could say, Kate? Who could say? Oh, my God. I don't even know if the plane's going to crash. <laughs> now, given the cloud cover, the pilots were flying under instrument meteorological conditions mm-hmm. at an altitude of 18,000 feet and could not visually confirm their location. So that just means that they couldn't see shit and they needed their computers to tell them what the fuck was going on. Totally. That's like when I'm driving somewhere and I just stare at the GPS on my phone rather than driving. Like I don't look out the window. I'm like, guys, it's a bit sunny out. I'm just going to rely on my instruments and assume that my cruise control is the same as autopilot. So whatever. Wow. Hopefully that means that you survive moving forward. (laughs) I can't recommend that to you or our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Um, now, while some reports state the pilot incorrectly estimated his position using dead reckoning, which is just a version of how they plot where they are, mm-hmm. the pilot was relying on radio navigation. So the aircraft's instruments displayed to the pilot a digital reading of the distance to the next radio beacon in Kuricho. Now, at Planchon Pass, the aircraft still had to travel a between 60 to 70 kilometers to meet Kuricho, which that's the point where they know that they can start descending. Gotcha. So they were a bit premature. <gasps> Nobody likes that. Mm. Now, regardless, at 3.21 p.m., shortly after transi- transiting the pass, LaGuara con- contacted Santiago and notified air traffic controllers that he expected to reach Kuricho a minute later than planned. The flight time from the past Kuricho's is normally 11 minutes, but only three minutes later, the pilot told Santiago that they were passing and turning north. Oh. Mm. False. Yes, probably a little <laughs> too soon. Yeah. He requested permission from air traffic control to descend. The controller in Santiago, unaware the flight was still over the Andes, authorised him to descend to 11,500 feet. Mm. Later analysis of their flight path found the pilot had not only turned too early, but turned on a heading 0.14 degrees when he should have turned 0.03 degrees. So that's just the degree, the angle in which they turn. Yeah, but that's like quite a severe you know left turn versus mm. going you know slightly veering to the left like you're you're like going on a diagonal now like mm. you're that's that's severe okay as the aircraft descended severe turbulence tossed the aircraft up and down nando parado one of the people on the flight recalled hitting a downdraft causing the plane to drop several hundred feet and out oh. of the clouds gross the rugby players joked about the turbulence at first until some passengers passengers saw the aircraft was very close to the mountain. In quotes, oh that was God. probably the moment when the pilot saw the Black Ridge rising dead ahead. Roberto Canessa later said that he thought the pilot turned north too soon and began the descent to Santiago while the aircraft was still high in the Andes. Then, in quotes, he began to climb until the plane was nearly vertical and it began to stall and shake. Oh, because it's the lead sled. Mm. Lead sled ain't got no power. <gasps> Could air- you imagine that, though? Sorry to, to interrupt you, but just you're cruising through the clouds and you're just like, you know, having a few drinks back in economy or whatnot. You know, whatever. I don't know what. <laughs> so maybe There's no class system. Whatever. Yeah. Anyhow, they're in there. You look it out the window. All there is is clouds. And then all of a sudden you look out and there's freaking mountains like right there. And yeah. you've just dropped out of the clouds and that this is worse nightmare stuff. This is great. Yeah. So then the pilot's freaked out. He's jammed down the little control. They're up vertical and now it's sort of starting to do the putter putter like great. Yep. Exactly. You can't describe it any better than that. Like do that. You're you're like your heart's in your throat, you're weightless, and yeah, all of a sudden you saw nothing and then clouds and then yeah, you started to climb. So Wow, okay. Yep. Right. So but the lead sled can't deal with the climb. Okay. Full aircraft weak engines. Now the aircraft ground collision alarm sounded, alarming all of the passengers. So even the passengers heard that shit's 
not good. Perfect. That's what you want. The pilot applied maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude. Witness accounts and evidence at the scene indicated the plane struck the mountain either two or three times. Oh. The pilot was able to bring the aircraft nose over the ridge, but at 3.34 p.m., the lower part of the tail cone may have clipped the ridge at 4,200 metres. The next collision severed the right wing. Some Mm -hmm. evidence indicates it was thrown back with such force that it tore off the vertical stabiliser and the tail cone in one fell swoop. Now, when the tail cone was detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin. The galley, baggage hold, vertical stabiliser and the horizontal stabilisers, leaving a gaping hole in the rear of the fuselage. Perfect. Three passengers, the navigator and the steward, were lost with the tail section. Mm -hmm. The aircraft continued forward and upward another 200 metres for a few more seconds when the left wing struck an outcropping at 4,400 metres, tearing off that wing as well. Now, if that's not enough, one of the propellers sliced through the fuselage as the wing detached and cut through the plane. Oh, my God. Two more passengers fell out of the open rear of the fuselage and the front portion flew straight through the air before sliding down the steep slope at 350 kilometres per hour, which is 220 miles per hour for those that... Still do that <laughs> we can, sort of thing. We can, do, yeah, we can do a measurement for you, but we won't. No. Okay, so this is, can I just say, public service announcement, this is why you need to wear your seatbelts at all times. Mm-hmm. That is, we always give you survival hints, handy tips where we can. That's my one for today. Wear yeah. your seatbelt whenever you're in the seat because you don't know and everyone's like, I'll be fine. I just want to be comfortable and have my little snooze. But if the tailpipe <laughs> gets ripped off and the tail end of the goddamn plane falls out, who's laughing now? Me, yeah. strapped into my safety belt. <laughs> if you really want to, put a parachute on the whole way. Yes, they don't mind. That's fine. Now, it's flying, well, not flying, it's skidding down this slope mm. at 300, 350 kilometres per hour like a high-speed toboggan. <gasps> <laughs> Love that word. I'm sorry, toboggan is a great word. <laughs> a high-speed toboggan. It really, truly is the lead sled now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Going off. And it slid for 725 metres before mm. colliding with a snowbank. The impact against the snowbank crushed the cockpit and the two pilots inside, killing Ferradas. He was the experienced colonel. Great. The official investigation concluded that the crash was caused by controlled flight into terrain due to pilot error. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The plane fuselage came to rest on a glacier at an elevation of 3,570 metres in the Malague Department, Mendoza province. So, yeah, that's going to be cold and uncomfortable, I think. Mm. It's not really a resort kind of vibe. No. Now, this unnamed glacier, which was later named Glacier de las Lagrimas or Glacier of Tears, mm. is between Mount Cisnido and uh, like 4,280 metres mm-hmm. high, another place called Vulcan Tinguaricha. Okay. So, it's straddling the remote mountainous. Border between Chile and Argentina. Mm-hmm. 
Now we will share we will share an app so folks want to see the flight path and see where things all went down. I'm going to give you a pretty detailed map of everything that we're going to go through in this story. Awesome. Okay, take a deep breath. Oh my goodness, the plane just crashed. Woo! Okay, those of you that weren't wearing seatbelts are no longer with us. Mm. So there's your safety bloody mention. Now let's get into what happens next because the ride ain't over. Survivors. Now of the 45 people on the aircraft, three passengers and two crew members in the tail section were killed when it broke apart. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read names out of respect for people. I do apologize for getting them wrong pronunciation wise, but at least I'm trying. Mm -hmm. Now Lieutenant Ramon... Sal Martinez, um, Ovido Ramirez, Gaston Costamel, Alejo Huen, and Guido Magri. They were the five that were instantly, we assume, uh-huh. killed as they were torn out of the tail section. A few seconds later, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valletta fell out of the rear fuselage as the left wing, you know, went kaput. Valletta survived his fall but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, fell into deep snow and was asphyxiated. His body was found by fellow passengers on December 14th. Now, at least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, which Mm -hmm. ripped the remaining seats from their anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane. Oh, okay. Yeah. So team physician Dr. Francisco Nicola and his wife Esther Nicola Eugenia Parado and Fernando Vasquez, a medical student. Pilot Ferradas died instantly when the nose gear compressed to the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his head out the window. Mm, Now, co-pilot LaGuara was critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him, but the passenger declined. Oh my god, there's a little like morality test for you. Mm. I guess at this point it's just happened and the I mean how dire the situation might not have settled in. Mm. You're in but, shock. You're in absolute oh, yeah. shock. Oh, for sure. At the at the very least, yeah, for sure. I don't know. I oh, yeah, there's not much hope of getting a you know, ambulance chopper in there. Mm. I'd almost be inclined to help the poor fellow out, but um, that's just my opinion. I wasn't there. It's a good Don't question know. to ask. Yeah. Now, of the people remaining, there were 33 alive. Okay. Although many were seriously or critically injured with wounds, including broken legs, which had resulted from the aircraft's seats collapsing forward against the luggage partition and the pilot's cabin, um, Kinesa and Gustavo Zabino, both first-year medical students, acted quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those they could help most. Mm. Nando Parado had a full—I mean—had a skull fracture and remained in a coma for three days. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen that, when removed, brought a few inches of his intestine with it. Damn. But he That's immediately bad. began helping others. What? Hang on. Mm. A bit of his intestines come out on a bit of metal, and then he's like, oh, do you know what I really feel like doing? Helping others around me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I just really get the vibe. <gasps> wow. That is yeah. phenomenal. 
when the oxygen masks drop, you have to help yourself and then others. That's so true. I Can I that say though, isn't that like, you know, isn't 101 of foreign objects is to leave them in? Is that not 101? Like leave them in and tie like a, you know, the tourniquet around them and whatnot. Because yep. obviously, you know, at worst, you'll tear some of your own intestine out. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like, again, if you find yourself in this situation and you think back to the Shitting Bricks podcast, what should I do? <laughs> Maybe leave the metal in for the moment. Just leave it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, of course, heroic thing trying to, oh. but, you know, you've got, and if you're in that situation, who knows how you're going to react. Oh, my but, goodness. Um, yeah, there's so much going yeah. on. It's a bit of a nightmare. Now, both of Arturo Nuagra's legs were broken in several places. None of the passengers, by the way, with compound fractures actually survived. So just yeah, keep okay. that in mind. Yeah. Now, are the compound fractures, are they the ones that pop out of the skin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Dante's Peak Vibes got you. Yep. Search and Rescue. Now, the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, SARS, which is an unfortunate acronym. Oh, gosh, that is unfortunate. Okay. Was notified within the hour that the flight was missing, which, by the way, I just, we all talk about reaction times and things like that. And I'm just, when I read that, I was like, oh, thank goodness, you know, they didn't just faff about for a bit. Mm. Going, oh, you know, they've just popped out for a cocktail or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, an hour within the hour, they recognised that the flight was missing. Four planes searched that afternoon, so the same day until the very dark hours. Yeah. Um, The news of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media at about 6pm that evening. Officers of the Chilean SARS listened to the radio transmissions and concluded the aircraft had come down in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes. Perfect. They called on the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, CSA. Unknown to the people on board or the rescuers, the flight had crashed about 21 kilometres from the former Hotel Damez El Sosanido. So mm. there was this hotel. It was an abandoned yeah. resort and hot springs that might have provided limited shelter, but they just didn't they, know that they were this close. But also 20K. So thinking about that, I mean, I live in a place, to give some context, I live in a place that's about 25 kilometres from the CBD of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I cannot see the CBD from where I live. No. And it would be one of those things. How would you know to be in this, you're in the Andes, if you start walking, like, what are the odds you're going to find something? How would they ever know? It's a needle in a haystack situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. On the second day, 11 aircraft from Argentina and Chile and Uruguay searched for the down flight. The search area included their location and a few aircraft flew near that crash site. The survivors tried to use a lipstick recovered from the luggage to write an SOS on the roof of the aircraft. That's they, smart. Yeah, but they quit after realising that they lacked enough lipstick to make letters visible from the air. Okay. They saw three aircraft fly overhead but were unable to attract their attention and none oh. of the aircraft crews spotted the white fuselage against the snow. Of course. Oh, that sucks. The harsh conditions gave searchers little hope but they that they would find anyone alive. Search efforts were cancelled after eight days. On the 21st of October, after searching a total of 142 hours and 30 minutes, the searchers concluded that there was no hope and terminated the search. 
The snow had not melted at this time in the southern hemisphere in spring, and they hoped to find the bodies in December when the snow melted in the summer. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that's your choice. You go, we, you know, we've exhausted our options of what we can do to try to find these people. We'll just have to wait till the snow melts to recover the bodies. That's horrendous. That is not a pleasant decision to make. No. And it's such a, such a big area and it's not exactly Mm. set up for, you know, you don't just pop to the shops, you know, you know, it's, it's un unwelcoming <laughs> sort mm. of. well that's it and we're talking the 1970s too you know we're obviously 50 years on mm-hmm. there's been many many changes in technology and everything between you know the 70s and now so i can only imagine oh goodness gracious so first week this is first week. i told you first week oh, oh my now, god during the first night five more people died co-pilot laguara Mm. obviously, from all of his serious injuries. Mm. Francisco Abal, Graziala Mariani, Felipe Macruarin, and Julio Martinez Lamas. The passengers removed the broken seats and other debris from the aircraft and fashioned a crude shelter. Mm-hmm. The 28 people crammed themselves into the broken fuselage in a space about 2.5 by 3 metres. Oh, God. It's that's like a, a standard size of like a bedroom in an apartment. Mm-hmm. Like that's that small. Okay. 28 people. Oh, goodness gracious. To try to keep out some of the cold, they use luggage, seats and snow to close off the open end of the fuselage. So mm-hmm. the back tail end, remember. They improvised in many other ways. For example, Fido Strouch devised a way to obtain water in freezing conditions by using sheet metal from under the seats and placing snow on it. The solar collector melted snow which dripped into empty wine bottles. That's clever. Very smart. That's really clever. Even in the snow, you have to think about water. It's not just as easy as, oh, you're around snow. You should have endless water. It's not how it works. Yeah, that's right. That's fantastic. To prevent snow blindness, obviously, when you're in that part of the world and all you see is bright white and the sun is obviously reflects off of white surfaces, surfaces, Mm. you can actually go blind from that brightness. So to prevent that, he improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin, some wire and a bra strap. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. This, so the same guy that did the wine bottle with the water is doing the sunglasses. This guy's amazing. Okay, we need him on our team for sure. They removed the seat covers, which were partially made of wool to use against the cold. They used the seat cushions as snowshoes. Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumed leadership, which I just, I think that's awesome. Like, yeah, you know. I hate hearing stories of where people turn on one another and I know Hollywood loves to play all that kind of crap up, but yeah. like hearing the opposite when people actually band together. And yeah, and I think to be honest, like you you kind of, yeah, life is not a Hollywood movie. No. There, you would be, if you are not in the position to take on a leadership role, if that's not part of, you know, who you are or your strengths or your, you know, what you enjoy doing or feel passionate about, um, I would love, I love someone to lead me. That's, that's the vibe. It's like, um, yeah, really good to have someone to tell you what you need to do. 
Now, Nando Parado woke from his coma after three days to learn that his mother died and that his 19-year-old sister, Susanna Parado, was severely injured. He attempted to keep her alive without success, as during the eighth day she succumbed to her injuries as well. That sucks. Imagine as well being out for three days, like being in a coma and surviving it. Like, honestly, we've already gone through the victim so far. But to be in a coma from a head trauma and then wake up three mm-hmm. days later and you're like, give me the update, like what's been going on. Oh, that's awful. Now, the remaining 27 faced severe difficulties surviving the nights when temperatures dropped to negative 30 degrees Ooh. Celsius, which mm. is like minus 22 Fahrenheit. Okay. All had lived near the sea. Most of the team members had never seen snow before and none had experience at high altitude. Mm. So, you know, we're not talking about people that have any clue of what survival requires in this part of the world. Yeah, we're literally talking about someone from Queensland coming to Melbourne and just losing their mind. Mm-hmm. Like, to the highest degree, though. This is, that's, yeah, not comfortable. The survivors lacked medical supplies, cold weather clothing and equipment, or food, and only had three pairs of the homemade sunglasses among them to prevent from the snow blindness. Yeah. The survivors found a small transistor radio jammed between seats on the aircraft and Roy Harley improvised a very long antenna using electrical cable from the plane. Mm -hmm. So he heard the news that the search was cancelled on their 11th day on the mountain. Oh my God, would you want to hear that? Mm. I don't think I would want to, but okay, all right. So in Piers Paul... Piers Paul Reed's book, Alive, the story of the Andes survivors, described the moments after the discovery. The others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. Nikolic climbed through the hole in the wall of the suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, after there was silence and there was hopelessness, you know, everyone just felt terrible. Mm. Um, And, you know, this predicament just enveloped them and they just wept. And they asked, why the hell is that good news? Pace shouted angrily at Nikolic. And he responds, because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. Oh, my God. That just gave me goosebumps. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine having the ability to say something like that in a moment like that and go, hey, guys, don't worry, they're not coming. Mm-hmm. That means we're gonna we're gonna do it ourselves. Don't worry about it. Wow, wait. That yeah, I've got really legit goosebumps now. My goodness, that's so cool. Pretty okay. impressive. Now the survivors had extremely little food: eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. Which mm-hmm. you know, look. To be perfectly honest, at that point, a bottle of wine would definitely put even just a glimmer of a smile on my face. Without a doubt. I'm trying to make some lightheartedness of the whole situation, but, you know, 
I think in that situation, I would try and grasp onto any sort of thing. And a bottle of wine definitely helps. Now, during the days following the crash, they divided this into small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Parado ate a single chocolate-covered peanut over the course of three days. So one chocolate peanut over the course of three days. Not a chocolate bar. Like, how do you do that? That's amazing. Okay. Now, even with this strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly. There was no natural vegetation and there were no animals on either the glacier or nearby snow-covered mountain. The food ran out after a week and the group tried to eat parts of the airplane, such as the cotton inside the seats and Mm. the leather. That's not going to go well. No, they became sicker from eating these, obviously. Yeah, I would think so. There's not a lot of nutrients in cushions and leather. Knowing that rescue efforts had been called off and faced with starvation and death, those still alive agreed that, should they die, the others might consume their bodies to live. Mm. With no choice, the survivors ate the bodies of their dead friends. Ooh, okay. So let's get into that. Okay, let's. <laughs> Just for some fun. Yeah, let's do it. Shits and gigs. Yeah. Now, survivor Roberto Canessa described the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members. This is what he had to say. Our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? Mm. For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages? Or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear. The group survived by collectively deciding to eat flesh from the bodies of their dead comrades. The decision was not taken lightly, as most of the dead were classmates, close friends, or even relatives. Mm. Knessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Later on, several others did the same. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered to them, but a a few refused and could not keep it down. Now, in his memoir, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, Nando Parado wrote about this decision. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest, Mm. with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway. Again and again, we scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. 
We tried to eat strips of leather torn from pieces of luggage, though we knew that the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions, hoping to find straw, but found only inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminium, plastic, ice and rock. Now, Parado protected the corpses of his sister and mother, and they were never eaten. They dried the meat in the sun, which made it more palatable. They were initially so revolted by the experience that they could eat only skin, muscle and fat. Mm. When the supply of flesh was diminished, they also ate hearts, lungs and even brains. Goodness me. Now, all of the passengers were Roman Catholic. Some feared eternal damnation, and according to Reed, some rationalised the act of necrotic cannibalism as equivalent to the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. Okay, got you. Others justified it according to a Bible verse found in John fifteen thirteen: No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Hmm, okay, I see that. Yeah. So technically it's a laying down of their their life for their friends. I see that. Okay. Now, some initially had reservations, though after realising that this was really their only means of staying alive, they changed their minds a few days later. Javier Methol and his wife Liliana, the only surviving female passenger, were the last survivors to eat human flesh. She had really strong religious convictions and only reluctantly agreed to partake of of the flesh eating after she was told to view it as like the Holy Communion. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it would be, I can't really picture first. I mean, I'm hung up on a couple of things. Firstly, you said in the title of that book that it was 72 days. So that's crazy. That's wild. And the second thing is you would really like sometimes, and I'm, this is not the same thing, but stick with me. Sometimes when I eat my wheat bix in the morning and I get to the last like mouthful of the wheat bix, they're super duper like squidgy because they've yes. just absorbed all of the milk and they're just not great. And whilst I've enjoyed my wheat bix and I ate all of them, I have that last spoonful and like my gag reflex kicks in and it makes me feel sick. I'm like, hang on, I just ate all of the wheat bix, but obviously it's just something about the texture. It's a mental thing. Yeah. I would imagine you would need to go through the same thing I do every day when I have my wheat bix and get over that mental block yeah. to, you know, survive. That's what we're talking about, survival. It's not even just about being, you know, enjoying human flesh meat. It's like they need to survive. Yeah. And that's why I oh. think this story is like the perfect story for us to do on Shitting Bricks because we're talking yes. about fears. I love it. But it carries on over into survival and what your body what you would do and i think cannibalism is such a perfect it's why i did it as the first episode because yeah i think it really encapsulates that overcoming of fear or what would you do to survive definitely and you know as they say in many of the books and many of the interviews you just can't predict what you would and wouldn't do exactly we just we can't oh yeah so, you know, if things weren't bad enough. Oh, no. Tom. 17 days after the crash, near midnight on the 29th of October, an avalanche struck the aircraft containing the survivors as they slept. Perfect. It filled the fuselage and killed eight people. 
Enrique Platero, Liliana Methol, Gustavo Nikolic, Daniel Maspons, Juan Mendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Marcelo Perez. The death of Perez, the team captain and leader of the survivors, along with the loss of Liliana Methol, who had nursed the survivors, they described her like a mother and a saint, were extremely discouraging to those remaining alive. Oh, no way. Of course. Like, yeah, 100%. Haven't these people been through enough? Mm -hmm. Like, who's dishing this out? That is so... Oh, that's not on. Yeah. Now, the avalanche completely buried the fuselage and filled the interior to within one metre of the roof. Mm. The survivors trapped inside soon realised that they were running out of air. So Nando found a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing ventilation. With considerable difficulty on the morning of the 31st of October, two days, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface, only to encounter a furious blizzard that left them no choice but to stay inside. Oh my God. I really hope. I really hope that somebody buys a lotto ticket after this because mm. this is the extent of bad luck. Oh, that's horrendous. Now, for three days, the remaining survivors were trapped in the extremely cramped space within the buried fuselage with about one metre headroom, together nah. with the corpses of those who had died in the avalanche. Oh, nah. With no other choice, on the third day, they began to eat the flesh of their newly dead friends. Mm. Jesus. We're still going. Now, with oh. Perez dead, cousins Eduardo and Fido Strouch and Daniel Fernandez assumed leadership. The three of them took over harvesting flesh from their deceased friends and distributing it to the others. Before the avalanche, a few of the survivors became insistent that their only way of survival would be to climb over the mountains and search for help. And because of the co-pilot's dying statement that the aircraft had passed Corricho, the group believed the Chilean countryside was just a few kilometres away to the west. So they don't know where they are. Yeah, that's right. They're just going off what they think they Mm -hmm. know. Right. They were actually more than 89 kilometres to the east, deep in Mm. the Andes. The snow that had buried the fuselage gradually melted as summer arrived. Survivors made several brief expeditions in the immediate vicinity of the aircraft in the first few weeks after they crashed, but they found that the altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment and the extreme cold during the nights made travelling any significant distance an impossible task. Yeah, yeah. there's a couple of, couple of issues there, a couple of roadblocks there for sure. So here we go. Haven't we already gone? Did we not go yet? Oh, crisp Dom. This is my favourite. I'm having such a good time. You did say at the start, this might be your best story yet. And I am, I'm here for it. I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Now the passengers decided that a few members would seek help. Several survivors were determined to join the expedition team, including Roberto Canessa, one of the two medical students, but others were less willing or unsure of their ability to withstand such a physically exhausting ordeal. Mm-hmm. Numa Tukadi and Antonio Vizentin were chosen to accompany Canessa and Parado. They were allocated the largest rations of food and the warmest clothes. 
They were also spared the daily manual labour around the crash site that was essential for the group's survival, so they could rebuild their strength. At Knesset's urging, they waited nearly seven days to allow for higher temperatures. They hoped to get to Chile to the west, but a large mountain lay west of the crash site, persuading them to try heading east first. Hang on, aren't they already east? (laughs) They're already so east. Don't go east. All right. They hoped that the valley they were in would make a U-turn and allow them to start walking west. Right. On the 15th of November after... So 15th of November. Mm-hmm. We are over a month since they've crashed. Great. After seven, I mean, yeah, when you were... Sorry. When you were saying uh, that they were going to wait until there was better weather, if you're settling in for the changing of seasons, you've been there too long. Mm-hmm. That's my That's my thinking behind this. So on the 15th of November, after several hours of walking east, the trio found the largely intact tail section of the aircraft (gasps) containing the galley. It was about 1.6 kilometres east and downhill of the fuselage. Inside and nearby, they found luggage containing a box of chocolates, (gasps) three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes. Here for it. Extra clothes. Love it. Comic books. Yes, for them. They need some luck. And a little medicine. Okay. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. Ooh, all right. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section. They built a fire and stayed up late reading comic books. Oh, my God. Could you just imagine? Mm. Like, you've been a month of, like, having to make decisions about eating other people, other passengers, stuff. The stress, the sickness, the constant, like, I'm just... I assume I'm just going to die. Yeah, Mm. like that, honestly. And then to sit up drinking rum and reading comic books by a fire, just the little bit of normalcy that might have brought to these people's lives. Oh, okay. Good for them. So they continued east the next morning. On the second night of the expedition, which was their first night sleeping outside, they nearly froze to death. Oh, no. After some debate the next morning, they decided that that it would be wiser to return to the tail remove the aircraft's batteries and take them back to the fuselage so they might power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago for help. That's clever. And on that note, I'm going to end the story there for us to finish in not next week's episode, but the episode after, folks. So I'm... I'm testing out a new little teaser for all of you. And if you want to find out what happens to the remaining survivors, you're going to have to stay tuned for my next episode in two whole weeks. Oh, Dom, I love that. Oh, you got me. You got me so good. (gasps) Oh, oh my gosh. We are only halfway through, so. Should we? Like, I'm so tempted to even, like, throw down the gauntlet. Like, let's change the format. Let's do your episode next week because I actually (laughs) really want to know. Like, (laughs) you can stick my Aliens Part 2, but I love it. Oh, my God. (gasps) Yes. Okay. I'm excited for Aliens Part 2. and I will. Look, upon some feedback that I received, I'm going to step it up. I'm going to step up my Aliens. I'm going to get some real... I'm going to get some real creepy shit because I feel as though I, you know, just scratched the surface. Let's get into some deep alien 
juju. Let's really go for it. Oh, yeah, I so, like the sound of that. I'm just going to go a bit deeper, throw some more conspiracy theories out there, get some ones that are a little bit murkier and not so clear cut. Yeah, I just want to, I want to really delve into that alien psyche a little bit. So I'm going to do it. Oh, Kate, you have got me very excited for that. I well, love this. It's, yeah, look, I think that, I mean, now I'm just going to be thinking about this miracle flight and I don't know anything about it. So this is new to me. So we might have some listeners who know a little bit about the story, but I'm just like here, no idea. I can't wait. That was so amazing. You got me so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's too good a story to rush through and Agreed. there's so lot, there's so much in it. And uh, we just shouldn't rush it. And I'm, yeah, we will, we will that. definitely finish it off in my next episode. But I'm, I'm very excited to hear about Aliens Part Two. I thought you did an amazing job last episode, but I'm very keen to hear what dirtier things you can find. Get murky, <laughs> yes. baby. Let's do it. Let's get murky, baby. We look forward to hearing from you guys. Please reach out to us on our socials, and we will see you slash here. I mean, you'll hear us. <laughs> Ah, oh, forget it. <laughs> Whatever. You know the score. Bye-bye. Love you so much. Bye. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush, and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.